We're going to go on to Dr. Hamrock's case. Can you present your patient? I had a 55-year-old postmenopausal female who presented in July of 2004 with a large fungating left breast mass. She was found at that time to have metastatic disease in her liver and her lungs on CAT scans. She originally met one of my partners who started her on treatment at that time after biopsy showed an ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative tumor. Uh, he started her on a Braxane every three weeks. Shortly thereafter, he moved over to another one of our offices and did not see patients at that office, so I took over her care. And as I met her, she had already reported a dramatic decrease in her breast mass after just one treatment. And I could see very quickly as well the mass was malodorous at the beginning. That discontinued. It dried up. She started to have a great attitude. What was amazing to me, and I never went back a lot with her on it, why she let it get to that point. She was an educated woman. She was a teacher at a local high school. And I thought it was unusual that she let it progress to that point. When she presented, what did the breast look like from what you could tell? It was probably two-thirds occupied, indurated, partly ulcerated, malodorous mass. Very impressive when I had seen it. And what was her family situation? She was married, though her husband, I think their relationship was somewhat strained. He wasn't very supportive. He never came with her to any appointments. She was very independent. She continue to teach throughout her treatments and as we'll go on with her story I think that perhaps her support system you know may have played a role with her decisions later on down the road. And were you able to determine about how long she had been aware of this? I didn't dwell too much into it at that point. I guess I worry about patients beating themselves up and thinking, well, what if, you know, I would have. So I just kind of progressed on from there with their treatments. And had she seen physicians and gynecologists? Had she gotten regular medical care? She did have a family doctor, but she really was healthy prior to that, had not had any routine pap and pelvic, was overdue as well for a few years. Had she gotten mammograms? No. Any sort of personal history with breast cancer, family members, or bad experiences? No. And Tony, can you talk a little bit about this syndrome? Everybody has, and we have several cases that were submitted like this of the patient who may be working, taking care of a family, maybe has really actually had pretty decent medical care, and yet presents with this extremely advanced lesion that they know about. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Every now and then we do run into these patients and you try to understand what's going on behind the diagnosis. I mean, patients bring their own personal histories and their perspectives and their life experiences and their marital situations, etc., into the clinical scenarios. And I have not been able to pinpoint one specific characteristics that will explain this kind of behavior. But unfortunately, we do see this, and I've seen this in very educated individuals. Recently, I saw actually a patient who happens to be a cancer researcher who has neglected a tumor for about eight years. Wow. She has been very fortunate in that she has had so far just locally advanced disease without development of metastatic disease. So biology is doing something there that we cannot explain. But it is a challenge, although I find some of these patients, when they finally get into the system and they volunteer, they decide to come, I would say most of the time they will stay and they will engage in some treatment, even though they have, until that moment, for the most part, ignored things. Skip, what's your experience with this syndrome? 
I would agree with the comments made. I do think that's the kind of patient, and having seen a couple in the last six months or so, that's where you kind of bring the whole healthcare team in. I mean, that becomes much more nurse heavy than physician heavy, and getting the folks involved, like psychology and social work, because there's something going on there, and whether anybody uncovers it or not. And if it's just a deep rooted psychological problem for that patient, that needs to be addressed. And if it's a family situation, which can often really peel back some interesting things when you uncover that. So I do think that we address it differently. And I think you really, that's a patient where if we can get them on a study, we like to just because you kind of get them tied into a formal regimen. So we'll really go bend over backwards to twist their arm and kind of get them in that disciplined approach. No twisting and, arm, Skip. <laughs> you know, and get them where they got the research nurse bugging them too to come in every week. So I do think you have to treat that patient differently. There's something going on there. And that's the only thing that I would add is that sometimes you do uncover a fear factor and that has led them to that kind of behavior and avoidance and now it becomes inevitable because it is uh, smelling bad. They can't hide from anybody else. Sometimes you may or not be able to hide from your significant others or so. I think what you said about trying not to inflict guilt into the patient, to a degree it is important because what you don't want to do is scare away that individual. You want to try to reel them in and gain confidence and make sure that they are going to come back. Okay, so now this lady presented with this really advanced lesion, symptomatic, malodorous, and metastatic disease. And I realize that you weren't taking care of her in the beginning, but the best way you can put together, do you think she was having symptoms from metastatic disease? Was she losing weight? Was there anything to be concerned about in terms of visceral crisis? She was not losing weight. Her appetite was fair. I think what really led her to finally come in was more of the malodorous. She was a teacher. She was around the high school students. And I think that's kind of what finally made her come to attention and seek help. And how extensive were her bone and liver mets? Her lung mets were small. And her liver lesions, she had basically about four to five, two to three centimeter lesions, normal LFTs. She really was asymptomatic from those. And bone? And bone was a questionable bone mets and no pain at all. So, Skip, you've got a lady with a very locally advanced disease, metastatic disease, 55 years old. She was postmenopausal? Yes. ER positive, HER2 negative tumor. What would you be thinking about as a strategy in this situation? So she said no treatment to date. Right. Correct. Okay. I think this is the kind of situation where I'm not so worried about trying to get them to surgery. I'm worried about further systemic disease, shrinking them down, maybe incorporating radiation therapy at some point. This is a place where I'd often bring an anthracycline in earlier. I think this is a situation where you're looking at your best cytoreductive potential. The clinical trials you'd be eligible for at our center right now would put three drugs together with uh, docetaxel, epirubicin, gemcitabine regimen. But I think that I'd be looking at something aggressive, maybe attack, maybe actually given a TAC. But I would be looking at giving an anthracycline as part of this up front and going ahead and seeing what I get out of that. And then depending on the degree of response, maybe you're looking at shrinking with the anthracycline and then giving something like the weekly paclitaxel of Vastin and follow-up, weekly paclitaxel bevacizumab and follow-up. What about hormones? I mean, I would be hoping and I probably would be telling the patient that we're going to try to spend four to six cycles of getting maximum cytoreduction and getting back to hormonal therapy without good data would be biased against thinking I get the kind of hormone response I need early enough and fast enough. I feel like this is the kind of patient where they almost need that positive reinforcement of seeing a great response to kind of sell them on the fact that we can support them, we can get rid of their tumor. So again, I'd be 
feeling good about going with whatever I thought was the best combination I could give right out the gate. What about bevacizumab? We need more data. Hearing the sessions earlier and commonly getting asked questions, I really feel hindered by the fact that our only data with bevacizumab is paclitaxel in a randomized trial. The ribbon studies have been ongoing, and so we're going to see some other single agents. There's a trial out there right now that's looking at gemcitabine and paclitaxel together as a combination with bevacizumab. And I do believe bevacizumab improves the response rates. That's been consistent in a number of the clinical trials. So incorporating them as early as possible, I'd be a fan of. So bottom line is what, if you had a guess specifically, you think you'd be most likely to start with? So going without a clinical trial for this patient here, I'd probably be looking at giving this patient an anthracycline, probably give her adriamycin cytoxin for a few cycles with the intention that I'm going to sequence her to weekly paclitaxel bevacizumab. Antonio, how would you be thinking this through? There's no right answer in situations like this, but the one thing that I would keep in mind is that I probably at some point would like to take her for surgery because I think you will be able to offer palliation in terms of improved local control. So I would have that more or less in the back of my mind. I wouldn't be too concerned, or maybe we should, but my initial reaction would be not to be too much concerned about the need for a superb response right away. And I probably may be thinking even about single-agent therapy, and I have been impressed by some of the data in the pre-op setting with simple regimens, even using single-agent paclitaxel which is likely to be quite tolerable. She is at risk for developing local infection with a fungating mass as well. So someone who has also been running away from the health system, if I can give her something that at first is not going to make her too sick, which you're likely to run the risk when you start using combination regimens, that might be one approach. So if I were thinking about chemotherapy at first, I might start with single-agent paclitaxel. Alone or with Bev? I haven't done it in patients with fungating masses and this kind of presentation before, but there are data in the pre-op setting with both taxanes and bevacizumab, and I don't have a sense at this point that the response rates are significantly higher than what you would obtain with a single agent alone. It's certainly an option, but the only caveat would be that at some point if you're thinking about surgery, there are concerns from some of the pre-op studies with taxanes and bevacizumab that you may run into delayed healing surgical complications. And so I would keep that in mind because of the long half-life of bevacizumab. On the other hand, if she were to tell me, I mean, some of these patients come into the office with rules. They will tell you what they are willing to put up with. And in that case, you know, you mentioned what about she has ER positive disease she's postmenopausal, would one be opposed to initiating endocrine therapy? I think that would be fine too. She does have metastatic disease. Ultimately, whatever we're doing is palliation. But my major concern at first would be improving her local control of her disease. She's a teacher. She probably wants to be around people, not smelling. And so I would keep those things in mind. So your best guess would be paclitaxel? As a single agent, yeah. And why would you choose that over NAB? Well, in my place specifically, for one basic reason, NAB is not on our formulary. So the situations where I have been using NAB, paclitaxel, are in patients who have had some hypersensitivity reaction or who cannot tolerate steroids. And in those situations, we are allowed to use NAB, paclitaxel. But I don't have, from a data standpoint, I don't have any specific evidence that would tell me that I should be using, if I had both available, that I should preferentially use NAB paclitaxel over conventional paclitaxel formulations. What are your thoughts, Skip, on NAB versus paclitaxel? I've been impressed with, you know, anecdotally 
quicker responses, better responses, if you can use that term, more frequent responses. I've found a little disappointing after other taxane therapy. I think if you've got somebody that's got a little bit of neuropathy, adding it on certainly can complicate things. But we're looking at trying to incorporate it more and more into first-line therapies, cost issues aside. And in our initial experience, and there'll be some data presented at San Antonio from our neoadjuvant work with NAB, Paclitaxel, it remains to be seen in a randomized trial. But my impression is it's a pretty good product, and it seems to give you a little advantage over paclitaxel from everything we've seen. Can you talk about what you're going to present there? So what we're going to present there is a trial that includes the nabpaclitaxel in with gemcitabine and some epirubicin, and the pathological CR rate's going to be in the 30% range. The response rate's going to be nearly 100%, very close to that. But the rapidity of the response is what's been most impressive. And so going into that thought of this kind of patient where you've got really significant substantial disease, that seems to be what's getting put on the clinical trial. It's been most pretty impressive sized tumors and the responses have been good and I think you always see initial early responses but getting that pathological CR or near pathological CR actually occurs fairly uncommonly so we've been encouraged by that. I actually have one patient because we do our trials through SKIP with locally advanced almost a fungating mass who had a pathological CR in the breast and the nodes on that regimen which was well tolerated. It's in every two-week regimen. Correct. I should have mentioned that. It's in every two weeks, so a dose-thin style that's supported well. And we expected it to be good, but we've been pleasantly surprised that it's been really good to date and some work on the pathology to try to figure out maybe why. Antonio, the NCI just had a two-day conference just on neoadjuvant therapy of breast cancer. I like to tell the lung and colon people about that. Two full days of nothing but neoadjuvant breast. I mean, amazing. Was fun. What was your take coming out of that in terms of themes of research in the neoadjuvant setting? I think there is an increasing level of comfort that in addition to the clinical utility and especially in patients with locally advanced disease of the use of pre-op systemic therapy, there is an increasing level of comfort that in patients with operable breast cancer, where in that case the primary motivation for pre-op systemic therapy would be to improve the odds of breast conservation, that we can use this as a model to test new hypotheses, to test new drugs. There is good evidence that a pathologic response, whether it's a pathologic complete response or even less than a pathologic complete response, can be used as a window into the future in terms of the future risk of disease recurrence and long-term outcomes. This is what we've seen in the data from the NSABP. And we now, some of those initial data were dichotomizing things in terms of PCR, pathologic complete response, and anything less. But now we actually have data from two data sets, one from Lisa Carey at UNC, the other one from Fraser Simmons at MD Anderson, showing that actually different degrees of response using TNM staging or using a residual cancer burden can also correlate with long-term outcome. So it is a very important platform for drug development. I'm curious what both of you think about the new NSABP trial, relatively new NSABP B40, that's looking at several different chemo regimens, plus or minus BEV, as neoadjuvant therapy. And they're looking at pathologic response, but also trying to look inside the tumor for translational correlations. Skip, what are your thoughts about that study, and where do you think we're heading in terms of studies like that? I'm a big fan of that, and it's interesting. Part of my world, obviously, I live in phase one, and we've started to answer that question and directly look at biopsying the patients who don't benefit to see what happens. You tend to get excited and benefit the patients who are responding. 
But more important information from that trial will be the group that doesn't respond, the group that doesn't get the dramatic benefit, and what sort of mutations exist. Is this going to be some story with P10 mutations that this new class of PI3 kinase inhibitors is really going to have an impact on? And sort of get a feel about where an angiogenesis inhibitor like bevacizumab makes a difference in terms of treating these patients. That's where we really need to head, studying the patients who don't benefit as much as the patients that do. And Tony, I'm really looking forward to soon Peg taking a crack at figuring out how bevacizumab works because we've been hearing from the lung people and the colon people, you know, there's a lot of spec- renal now, you know, speculation about how the drug works. Any thoughts about that whole debate and maybe markers of response to Bev? Starting from the end, in terms of markers of response, I think we're totally in the dark. We're looking for the HER2, for the ER, for Bev, and at this point, we don't. And I think what's striking for a lot of people is that this is a drug that appears to have uh, utility in a variety of different diseases. So you could assume that either... One example of HER2 is not a marker that has been proven useful in other diseases. So angiogenesis may be a more promiscuous, if you will. Well, it is a more promiscuous event that happens in all sorts of tumors. But the question then becomes whether the drug is being useful because it is simply a drug delivery issue, improving drug delivery, as it has been shown in some of the colorectal studies with associated imaging. Is this an issue of developing of new blood vessel formation, which may suggest that the drug may work differently in the adjuvant setting with micrometastatic disease versus in patients with metastatic disease and established tumors where drug delivery may play a role? Any issues in terms of hypertension that's seen commonly with BEV in terms of predicting response, anti-tumor response? Has that been looked at? To me, it's a continual discussion in the question, and I'm smiling because in the clinic, you feel like if you're not seeing some hypertension, you're wondering you know, if they're getting their full bang for their buck, but then if they get it and it's not easy to control, and I find myself opening up the PDR and getting the nurses to tell me what blood pressure medicine I can go to next, so I find I get an excuse for a cardiology consult a little bit sooner. I think that it's been manageable for the patients, and I do think that there seems to be some data that seems to suggest maybe more with the oral veg inhibitors, sunitinib, serafinib, that there seems to be some correlation with the degree of effect they're getting from the drugs. Can you just capsulize sort of what happened from that first point of diagnosis right up to now? Sure. So in 2004, she had been started on a single agent Abraxane every three weeks, and she had a dramatic response. After six months, she continued to teach full-time, did not require any time off. Her breasts completely healed up except a very small crusted area. Her CAT scan showed just one one-centimeter residual liver lesion, lung lesions resolved. At that point, she received a break. I put her on an aromatase inhibitor, gave her radiation therapy to that breast to try to give some further local control to that area. I didn't want her to have to have a recurrent problem in the future. At that point, what was her life like? What was her attitude like? Very positive attitude. I think she was pleased with how she felt on the treatments. Never phased her. You know, she really kept going. And I think because she tolerated the treatment so well and could see the response, she was up for continuing with whatever we recommended. How did she do neuropathy-wise when the abraxia? Very well. How long was she on it? After she had radiation to the breast, about three months later, she had some mild disease progression showing in her liver. Lung was still clean, so we restarted a Braxane. She was on that for a total of about a year and did very well. Any neuropathy? Minimal, very minimal. And then actually complained of left-sided weakness, kind of all of a sudden got very weak fast. 
had a significant amount of brain mets discovered. Her systemic disease on her liver and her lungs were actually completely stable. The breast tumor was stable. She agreed to be referred to radiation therapy, only received a couple treatments, and then refused to continue on with any radiation therapy. Do you know why? I, for the first time, I met her husband. He came in with her <coughs> because she could not come in on her own. And, you know, she ended up in the hospital just a few days after the radiation, very weak. Her husband wasn't in the hospital with her. Her son was over in Iraq. And I felt like she just gave up. I was worried she was very depressed. I talked to her about that, which she denied. I just felt that possibly because she had become dependent on this man that she had a very bad relationship with. And she denied physical abuse, but I think emotionally he was abusive. And I almost felt like because she couldn't be independent on her own and was dependent on him she didn't want to be here and she declined any other treatments and we had to get her into palliative care hospice i did put her on an aromatase inhibitor just to try to maintain some control during that time antonio any comments No, these cases are incredibly tough when you realize that you're not dealing with just a disease, but also the whole family dynamics, what's around them, their work, their personal lives, etc. And that's why it is so important as soon as possible. I usually, I quote unquote, complain to my patients when I start seeing them, especially patients with advanced disease who are coming to the clinic alone, who are not bringing their significant others. And that's gives me chills in my spine because I know that there's something happening there and even though I'm only seeing that patient once a week or every other week for a half an hour, 15 minutes, I feel it's part of our responsibility as well to try to help them. And I think sometimes indirectly we can try to work things out a little better for them. Did you mention that you would consider surgery at some point? Let me rephrase that by saying that I would consider what would be needed to improve for local control. And I think, number one, it looks like the motivation for this patient to come to the clinic might have been that things, it was smelly. If she wanted to continue to work, it was affecting her ability. So it appears that with chemotherapy and with potentially some radiation afterwards, that there was very good local control, and that became a non-issue. I do keep surgery in mind in patients whose disease do become operable in terms of knowing that at some point the disease may progress and you may be where you were a year or two years ago. But one point you may be indirectly touching is the whole issue of surgery of the breast for patients with metastatic disease and whether you have a survival benefit or not. This is a topic of interest for a lot of individuals. Seema Khan at Northwestern has, Monica Morrow have looked into these issues. And the data are not conclusive. Patients who go for surgery, often there is a little bit of a selection bias when you start looking into outcome of the individuals who had surgery. There is actually a proposal out there for a potential randomized trial in patients with metastatic disease to have surgery of the primary tumor versus not.